Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, and today I'm speaking to Clint Campbell about scouting whitetails at home and on the road. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You've heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. If you don't have some of the trace clothing, the trace pants, or maybe the quarter zip, and you want to go get some work done in the Whitetail Woods, you might want to check it out. Super breathable, super durable. Uh, it is just the right stuff for early season hunting and for summer scouting and getting your work done. So check it out. You've got it. You've guessed it. Mark's still off. But he's not really doing anything cool this time. He just sent me a text and he said, listen, Tony, I have to level with you. I just need to go fly fishing. I've only been on the water 97 days this summer and I'm just itching to get out and catch a few fish. Man, you kind of got to feel sorry for the guy, don't you? I mean, that's barely any playtime. So I hope he catches some fish and he finds a good place to show off his catch on social media if he's so inclined. And so while he's off tossing dry flies to brownies and cuts, I'm back here keeping the lights on, but it's not all bad because I get to talk to killer whitetail hunters like Clint Campbell, who happens to be my guest today. Clint hosts the Truth From The Stand podcast. He plays a mean guitar. He's an expert at wrapping people into tiny little bows through his jujitsu skills. And he scouts deer harder than almost anyone you've ever met. That's what we get into today, and he breaks down his strategy for mastering public land whitetails out east and how he approaches traveling hunts when he draws a tag somewhere far from his native Pennsylvania. Clint is honestly a wealth of whitetail knowledge, and I think you're going to love hearing what he has to say. 
So Clint, as usual, we started uh, talking as soon as we saw each other here, and we've we've gone through, we've solved most of the world's problems before we even started this podcast, but we should probably get into this and talk a little bit about scouting, huh? Yeah, talk a little scouting, man. I mean, we've already gone to Mars, we went to Saturn, uh, we won a UFC belt, a title, <laughs> you know, like so... I mean, why not solve deer hunting problems at the same time? You know? Yeah, we we definitely should. And, it, it, you know, I wanted to have you on for a lot of reasons. I always love talking to you. You've got the Truth From The Stand podcast. You're you're one of those people who's out there, you're living it. Like, you're you're always, you know, you're always sending me pictures, and we're, we're always going back and forth. And we just started talking a little bit off air that I, it, you brought up something I want to get into. You know, you mentioned how important winter scouting is to you. And I, mm-hmm. I, I'm the same way, you know, like I feel real cheated this year because we had a nasty winter and you guys had a pretty bad winter and you had some other stuff mm-hmm. going on. So you didn't get to take yeah. advantage of that window the way that you, you usually do to feel good about your season. And so you're kind of scrambling now and you have to summer scout, uh, you know, at home there in Pennsylvania, like you usually don't have to. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I'll be honest and I'll be a hundred percent transparent. It's, I, the summer is my least favorite time to spend time in the woods. You know, uh, it's hot, it's buggy. I'm getting cobwebs all over my face. I can't see the ground the way I want to see the ground. The rubs now have kind of faded to where it's a lot harder to tell. Was that last year's rub? Was that two years ago? Um, so the sign obviously just isn't there. And you know, the, the, the nice thing about winter scouting is when you have all the foliage off the trees, it's like, I don't have to walk that extra 75 yards or whatever the case is to go check out this thing over here. If something catches my eye, like a rub on a tree, it's like, I can see the discoloration through the open timber at that point. Right. A lot of times I can throw some glass on it and I can tell, okay, is that something I'm walking over there for? Or am I headed, you know, continuing the direction that I was, I was going anyway. Right now it's a little different where it's, you know, it's a lot of map reading and kind of finding those spots and then getting to them. And like, you know, if it's thick cover, it's, you maybe only see 10, 15, 20 yards. And so now you're really having to dissect things. It slows it down. You don't cover nearly as much ground, but you know, with that, you know, you just kind of deal with the cards, um, the cards that you have. And we were talking a little bit yesterday, we were texting a little bit before we, uh, you know, we knew we were going to be chatting today. And I think I mentioned to you, adaptability is sometimes our best ability, right? Mm-hmm. With deer hunting. And I kind of feel like that's where I'm at now. You know, I talked to, um, I did a podcast, who did I do that podcast with? It might have been, it's actually been a couple of different guys. Like Heath Cisco was one guy and a Mike Perry from Pennsylvania was another guy. And we talked a little bit about the reliance on winter scouting and like we might rely on it a little bit too much, right? Because it tells you the story of last year. Um, and without being there, whenever, whatever sign was laid down, you don't really know particularly what week that happened, right? It's like you might be able to tell just based on how close it is to like a food source or like a bedding area or like a specific terrain feature or something like that, that that might be like rut sign or that might be like early season sign or whatever the case is. But you really don't 100% know. And so this year it might be a blessing in disguise where it's like I'm going to get out, hang my cameras here um, in the next couple of weeks, kind of finish hanging those uh, and doing a little bit of scouting, a little bit more exploring on the new piece I've been uh, been looking at. Um, but by and large, this year is probably going to be a lot of, you know, boots on the ground come September, October and starting to fi- figure things out. And so, you know, I'll start to lay the groundwork for that here during the summer. Um, but it will be a lot of doubling back in the uh, in the fall to kind of check my premonitions <laughs> from the from the summer, if you will. Yeah. And in your your situation, do you, do you hunt any private land? I do not on an, well, I shouldn't say I don't, um, on an occasion, I mean, my family does own, uh, in like central ish Western side of PA roughly, you know, we have a couple hundred acres between a couple different parcels. 
Um, but I haven't been back there in probably four or four or five years, probably, uh, other than like a, a wayward turkey hunt one day with my dad, <laughs> like yeah. three years ago. That was, that was about it. Uh, but yeah, for, you know, by and large, it's all, all the public either that's around me a couple hours North of me or out of state. Yeah. So you're where I want to go with this is your style is tied so closely to the kind of terrain you're hunting. Yeah. So you, you know, you're hunting the mountains of Pennsylvania. You're, you don't have a situation where you're going to grab the spotter and go sit on the edge of a bean field in, you know, late July, early August, whatever. So like the importance for you of getting out there winter scouting would be different from some dude saying like maybe Ohio or somewhere like that. And I think that there's an important lesson there, uh, Cause it's so easy for us to hear like, Oh, well I just run trail cameras as a scout or I just do this or Zach Farenbaugh does this or whoever does this, but it's so tied to your personal situation. Yeah. And 100%. so for, for you, you know, that winter scouting in that big wood scenario, it's like such an advantage. And then if you lose that, you're like, okay, now I'm scrambling and I got to get a ton of cameras out and you, and you run a ton of cameras, right? Yeah. I mean, I'll have out, you know, I probably own, I want to say maybe 30 roughly is probably what I have in my arsenal, you know, probably like nine ish cell cameras. And then the rest are all regular SD card cameras. But on that North on the big woods piece, it's like, I'll pull, you know, cameras with my buddy, Aaron Hepler and my other buddy, Tom, you know, we'll all kind of pull our cameras together and like commit X number of cameras to like the, that spot. And so in that piece alone, we'll probably have between the three of us, like 30 plus cameras on there. And we've met some other friends. We get some other friends up there and we all share intel. I mean, the place is so big. That's the one thing, you know, when you're hunting smaller pieces. So like for me locally in PA, I don't share really intel with anybody locally because it's just like, there's not a lot, like the, the public pieces just aren't real big and there's a lot of pressure. And I certainly don't put any pictures online of deer that I'm getting on camera or anything like that. If anyone ever sees me share a picture, you can almost guarantee it wasn't from PA and certainly wasn't from, you know, my local area. Um, you know, me and a couple different guys, like we'll all share Intel with each other because the place is so big, we're not going to step on each other, you know? And so I have pictures of deer and, you know, Tom has pictures of deer. I'll send him my pictures and be like, Hey, I saw this deer. He was on camera over here. And then we can start to get an idea of like how they're moving. Cause otherwise it just takes, I say it always takes about three years to figure a spot out roughly. And then you can start to reasonably consider that you should start to have the type of encounters that you want to have it may not kill that third year, but you should at least be in the game. Before that, though, if you don't have any help, you're you're really throwing a dart at a dartboard, you know, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and so we try to do the best we can just kind of help e- help each other out and allows us to kind of like lay a game plan. You start to understand how deer are starting to use that terrain. You know, this place has just wildly open timber. And then all of a sudden you get like really kind of almost like micro habitats where all the sign kind of explodes where the where it gets really thick and they've, they've got some food and they've got some cover. But there might be two miles between that and the last place you saw sign. And so. To figure all that out on your own, you know, is, is, is a task. So run me through a scenario here because when, when I think of like big woods type of hunting, I mean, my big woods type of hunting is a little bit different because I can't run cameras on a lot of the places that I hunt, like in Northern Wisconsin, some of the rules and stuff. And so for me, it's so tied to winter scouting, looking for the sign and then summer scouting, just looking for the sign. Cause there's not, I, you know, I don't have the glassing situation, but you, you rely so heavily on those trail cameras to do some heavy lifting for you in the summer. So let's say you go out 
and you're like you don't you don't have this current winter scouting situation where you're like okay i know i'm gonna go drop a camera here here and here because of what i saw you're going in now let's say you're bringing in a half a dozen cameras or whatever what what are you hanging them on are you looking at like train traps what are you doing here yeah so that's that's a very good question because that's exactly where i'm at (laughs) (laughs) like because where i had run cameras in the past so one thing i will do is i'll roll Rely on like historical data. All the cameras I typically run, I leave out for a year and then I go back and I gather them, you know, and I might check them in the fall, but by and large, they stay out for the year. And I start to just get a sense of like one, how often am I seeing new deer in the fall and how often am I finding home bodies? And what I've kind of found, at least on this big piece, is that I get a lot more home bodies than I do on smaller parcels for whatever, for whatever reason. And so if I have five good bucks, you know, on a camera, let's say in this big woods piece, chances are three of them will probably be around in the general area whenever fall rolls around. Where for locally for me, if I have five good bucks on camera in the summer in an area, I'll be lucky if one sticks around. You know what I mean? For whatever reason, that's just something that I've noticed. So most of the place that I've kind of focused on the past two years is really challenging challenging spot to hunt. And there's another area that I kind of, I hung a couple cameras, let them run for like the past two years, hadn't hunted it once because it seemed like it was the easiest access. I always had great deer on camera, but in the back of my mind is always like, man, this place is going to get pounded because it's the easiest access. seems like the most logical place for someone to jump in if they wanted to do a quick hunt. But in the course of two years, I think I might've had three people on camera and all of them were during gun season. And so I'm like, all right, so archery season, we're kind of in place. So I need to kind of expand on that piece. And so what I'm really kind of looking for, especially in this, in this particular area is there's not a lot of undulation in terrain in this particular area. Cause you're already kind of on top of on top of the mountain, so to speak. And so really what I'm looking for is just very slight variations and change in elevation. So it might only be like a 10 foot rise or something like that. That's just going to kind of funnel deer around an area. Cause I found one spot like that. And that's where I found a lot of deer traffic. The other part is, is finding, you know, this is again, using a little bit of Intel from the one or two cameras I did have in that area the past two years is that most of the bucks that I was seeing, they actually had like black up to like mid shin if you will and there's a handful of like swamp areas that are around there and so whenever i was watching these pictures of these bucks come through you know last fall it's funny because i was i wasn't even looking at their head at first i was looking at their feet to see if they had mud on their feet you know and so when i started seeing like the 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 younger deer that would come through i didn't see that as consistently all the bigger deer that i had come through almost all of them had dirty legs and so it's like i started then looking around going okay where like the swampy kind of areas and not so thick that you can't get through, but like where are the spots where it look kind of open just from, you know, looking, looking on a map, you know, e-scouting. And then from there, what I started looking for were just kind of like little land bridges between swampy areas to kind of go investigate, you know, and then I started thinking, you know, so that was the first thing, what are the land bridges? And so I'll investigate those. And then the other part was, was just looking at my prevailing wind and knowing that I get a south, you know, south, southwest, west kind of predominant prevailing wind during that time of year. And then looking at the opposite side of those swamps and those areas going like, all right, are there any terrain features there that are going to kind of funnel them down toward the edge of that swamp? Or is it flat? They can kind of meander out and I just need to kind of go investigate that stuff. But I'll start on that side of the swamp knowing that that's going to be my predominant wind and that'll be my most likely tree locations that I would want to find to play, to be able to play the wind. When you're running cameras, can you see those bucks have muddy, muddy feet on there too or not? Yeah. That's how, that's how I, Oh, that's how you see it. It's not interesting. I think it was, I think it was Steve Bartell that wrote an article one time years ago. I might even edit it when I was at P 
Peterson's bow hunting, but he said big bucks have wet feet. And I've thought about I, that because it's so freaking true. Um, yeah. I want to back up a second because you said something about you know running cameras on bigger properties and home bodies versus running cameras on smaller properties and not not necessarily any. It's, it's easy to find a home body there. Don't you think that's just tied to the amount of a deer's like home range that you have to work with? I think it's that. And I think, and this is just, look, I, I don't claim to be smart enough to know this for a fact. It's just, these are just kind of my hypothesis or my hypotheses. But if I were to venture a guess, I think it's one, yes, they have so much more room and they have so much more kind of like available to them that why would you completely change home, home ranges? There's, there's likely multiple doe families within that area already that they are, that they're using to, for food and cover just kind of in, in general. Right. And then I think the, the second part of it is, is that food is so sparse there that I think that they just kind of move around like with, as the food changes and as opposed to like going like three properties over or whatever, they're just staying in that general area because there's a, a patch of oaks here. And then and in the summer, there's a bunch of wild blueberries and raspberries because I see that a lot, especially in around those swampy areas where it's like those bed just like there, those deer just bed in there and live in that area until the bears run through, run them out and they'll, then they'll come back essentially. Um, and then I think the other part is too, is that they make such, even when they are doing a little bit of traveling, they make such long cycles that if you're, if you're impatient, you'll think they have left. But if you really think about it and you see them kind of come back, it's like, instead of it being like a three day window where you catch them, it might be a five, seven, eight day window, yep. you know? And so that's the other thing, like when you're on big pieces, I just had to kind of learn painfully over time is that just because they hadn't been around for eight days, maybe even 10 days, depending, you know, I just might be in the wrong little, you know, 500 acre chunk. They might be playing this hundred acre piece over here just to my East or whatever. They've not left the area. They're just not in this little, not in this particular chunk, Yep. you know? And so, and that's what I've seen. And when I say homebody, it's not that I've caught that deer on camera, <clears throat> the same camera consistently. I might have during the summer and then maybe a couple times during the fall, but I had a camera that was, a quarter of a mile away, you know, kind of like a cast the net. And it's like, I caught him on two other ones over here all fall long. Plus the one I had him on originally in the summer, like three times. Yep. Right. So I'm going, he's maybe not bedded in the same exact spot because, you know, foliage has come down, bedding situations change, but he's still, in, he's still in, at home. He hasn't completely left, you know? And so that's kind of what I've seen, at least on that, on that big woods piece. Yeah. There's a, I think there's a really valuable lesson in that where when you talk about using trail cameras to scout and I, I had to figure this out the hard way when I when I started hunting a lot of small properties like 20 to 40 acre type type of chunks the the randomness to deer movement feels so real especially when mm -hmm. you're trying to find a decent buck you're like man he was here September 27th and he wasn't back until October 16th and one time he was here in the day one time he was here at night it's like yeah because you might be hunting five percent of his home range or yeah. you know, three you know if you if you get into a big wood scenario where you talk about with like limited food and lots of cover you might have a home range that's 900 acres and mm -hmm. now you're you're hunting 20 acres of it or 40 acres of it and it, i think it's hard for us to wrap our heads around that sometimes you go well he's just totally nocturnal or he's not moving and it's like man you're just playing with a little tiny piece i'd be like if you were looking for somebody in a house and you could only stay in like one closet <laughs> right like, they're not home <laughs> and you're like spin around in the closet and you're like well you can't look in the living room you can't go downstairs and i think 
the 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 big lesson there is to be really careful about trail camera usage as far as like what you deduce out of that you know like you said if you're working some big cover you know you've got a thousand acres or five thousand acres of big woods to work and you get a picture of them here and then a month later a picture of them here and you can draw a line between them and you go okay we're within a third of a mile quarter of a mile whatever like now you're starting to pin down what could be considered like some level of core area. Like now you have something to work with. It's vastly different than being on 30 acres and going, I got two pictures of him. I guess I'm going to sit here. Like you got to, right. like you said, you got to work with what you're like the hand you're dealt and it's different. Yeah. And that, and that two pictures on a, on a piece, the size of this big woods piece, like that's like, for me, that's money in the bank, especially if I get them at two different times of the year, you know, that's all I really need at that point. It's like, if I get him in the summer and know he's around, right. And then I get him again, October 15th. That's all I need. I don't need any more pictures of him. I know he's going to be here at the, at, you know, all fall. He might transition, you know, around winter, take an excursion during rut, even though it's just interesting. Cause I was re-listening back to like some stuff I did with Dr. Um, Bronson Strickland from uh, MSU deer lab. Mm-hmm. And the idea, and this changed, this kind of changed how I looked at my trail camera data too. And just knowing that, you know, we think that the deer are more predictable and patternable, you know, in October early, earlier in the year, for example, right? Like they're still on like maybe a pseudo bed to food ish pattern. They've not completely got all ramped up and started thinking about chasing, chasing does and stuff like that. And then we think when rut happens that all of a sudden, like they go berserk and they like, they're running all over the place and they're bedding in like various places, you know, every different day, every day there's a different bed. Right. But the data actually suggests the, the opposite. They're way more sporadic and unpredictable in October in their bedding patterns, and they're way more predictable when the rut happens, right? Well, he doesn't, they don't have data on this, but we actually, he and I talked about it, and I was like, doe families, right? He's like, don't have data, but I would put any amount of money that mattered to me that, yeah, their consistent bedding is tied to like doe families that they're hanging around, right? And I would go, and I would say maybe that doesn't go for younger bucks, but I think older bucks, you know, <clears throat> get smart and get hip to the game, right? And so, because I've talked to, geez, this is something like I saw this play out this year too. And this this thing this taught me two different lessons that I kind of knew academically, but really kind of, you know, made them concrete for me. You know, John Eberhardt a lot would talk about hunting over scrapes, you know, and especially when you're scouting trying to find a scrape, it's hard to during the summer sometimes. But if you can find a good community scrape. You know, a dominant deer in the area, a dominant buck in the area will likely at some point probably come bed not far from that scrape and wait for does to come through and hit that scrape. And he's going to scent check them as they're coming through as opposed to chasing them. Right. So it's the old adage of like, you know, in my 20s or 30s, we were out running like crazy men, right, crazy people. And now I'm 45 and I'm like, man, man, I'll sit. I'm just happy to sit home and hang out. You know what I mean? And it's a similar type of thing. It's like why work? harder when you can work, work smarter. And so last year I was hunting one of my favorite kind of community scrape areas and the target deer I wanted to kill locally walks in beds down about 40 yards from the scrape, about 35 ish yards from me and was downwind of that scrape and just was sitting there scent checking that scrape for two hours, bedded, sleeping, nodding off, waking up, readjusting, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the one kind of lesson, academic lesson I learned in real time was that one, Yes, those older deer will kind of bed downwind of that and they won't even come to the scrape, right? So, which gives credence to hunting the places in between those kind of destination spots. And then the second one was 
I got him on camera. So this ties back to our summer thing. I got him on camera. The last time was like September 15th, right? Never again did I get that deer on camera the rest of the season. But he was comfortable enough to bed 40 yards from that scrape and walked in and he knew what he was doing. Yep. So that time I got him on camera, was that the only time he was ever there until the time that he showed up at that bed? If I were a betting man, I would say not. Yeah. Right? No way. He's just consi- he's consistently going to be in that general area until the doe that needs to get bred in that area is is bred. Yep. Right. And so that deer's consistently there. So it just kind of goes back to what I was saying, where it's like, I don't need more than two pictures. I just need the two pictures to be at the right time yeah. to know that that deer's home range is is in that area. And that may not be true for everybody. That's just kind of how I look at it. And it's not the gospel, but it's how I kind of approach it. Well, that that lesson there is one probably for a different podcast we could do an entire thing on it but i think that we look at the rut so wrong most of the Mm -hmm. time like you said you know eberhardt's talking about how look at the look at the the strategy there if you know that there's dough is going to come through there there's no reason to go wear yourself out looking for them when they'll come to you you know it's like i've written about this a whole bunch but i see bass like I, i bass fish a lot and I see them adopt two strategies to hunt. One of them is they ambush and they sit in a stump, like next to a stump or a you know a dock, and they use the shadows to their advantage and they wait for something to crawl into their world and they eat it. Or, you know, you see this with a lot of younger ones, they'll form a little wolf pack and they go looking. And they go mm-hmm. find that school of minnows to chase or find a place where the crayfish are. And it's like two different strategies. But the old ones, like the big ones, you don't see them out like schooling up, burning a bunch of energy to do what they could do without burning a bunch of energy. And yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm dumb. I'm a slow learner. So every year I go out and I hunt the rut and 5,000 times in the, in a couple of weeks during the rut, I'm like, why aren't there deer running all over the place? And you know, this <laughs> happened to me last year when I was hunting Southwestern Wisconsin, where I'm like, I know I'm around a ton of deer. This area has a ton of deer and I'm like blanking or, you know, seeing very little. And it's like, you know, if you, if you look at this on paper, there's no reason for a buck to have to work that hard there. So you'd Mm -hmm. think like a, a, you know, some kind of chase is going to end up in your lap or some kind of cruiser, but it's just not necessarily the case, especially if they're not way spread out and there's not a lot of competition. Why, why would they? And, you know, and then you say like, well, some of the scrappers are going to come through and like, that's what happens. Like you sit all day and you see like a forky <laughs> or, you know, right. like you're in like a primo spot and that little basket rack six comes through, but it's not the chase fest that we always assume it's going to be because that's just not how nature works most of the time. Yeah, there was a couple things like speaking, going back to like summer scouts, like the one thing that I started doing, regardless of whether it's winter or summer, is if, if I find a really, really good kind of community scrape area. It always gets a camera. Even if, even if I see like something in the summer that looks to me like, okay, I can still see that there's some licking branches broken, you know, that this is obviously something that they're using as a scrape and they're hitting a licking branch. And especially if there's a couple of rubs that are around it, that to me kind of is like, okay, this is worth a camera and I'll just see what happens, you know, and I'll qualify scrapes that way where I'm just going to hang it. I'm going to let it run for the whole year. And then if I see deer hitting it during the summer, then I know like, okay, Yahtzee, this is like a communication hub. And then we just have to figure out how good it is or if it turns on at a certain time. The other thing I started doing, and I learned this from actually hunting with my buddy Chad in this big woods piece in, in Ohio, because there was this area that 
he got this one deer. I think it was this deer he called, we called Chrysler because there was a guy that used to hunt there. His name, last name was Chrysler, I believe. And, um, and it was just like this really small spine back. And like, so the does would always run like this spine back. Right. And like, you would never see deer during daylight in there really ever. Right. It was always kind of like night, nighttime, but there was this giant bed that was just like off that spine back, maybe four or five foot in the brush that was just huge and like warm to the dirt. But we would never get a picture of a buck in there like any other time of year other than like the rut, right? And so it was kind of a rut bed. I was like, so, huh, interesting, rut bed. Does traveling us a lot. Makes a lot of sense. He can sit here and just pick does off. Okay, cool. Another area, there was this big primary scrape that we would just get like these hammer bucks on. Like one of them was like a world-class animal. And two years we've watched this scrape and like hunted in and around it and stuff like that and nothing ever really happened. And we were scouting the following year and I just happened to be on the, I guess, the leeward side of that ridge behind that scrape about 60 yards down the side of the ridge as we were coming up. Because we went all the way around the ridge, and then we were coming back up. And as we were, our rendezvous point was kind of like to come up and meet right around that scrape because it was in this like, old log yard. And as we're coming up, there's like a giant bed that's perfectly downwind of where that scrape was at, about 60 yards from it, like on this little bench. So I pull up my map real quick, and I'm looking, I'm like – you gotta be kidding me, man. I'm like, this thing is like literally right below that scrape. And so not a big surprise. All of a sudden, you know, that rut rolls around or pre-rut or whatever time frame, and, and a buck starts bedding there waiting to catch does and just scent checking and never has to move. Right. So now what I started doing is when I find these community scrapes, I don't take a ton of time, but I take like a quick, like 30 minutes and just kind of like do like a pinwheel out from that, from that community scrape. And just start pinwheeling my way out to where I get maybe 30, 40, 50 yards in all directions out from it to see if there's a bed that's around there somewhere that that, that a deer might use during the rut, right? To see like – because I don't think – I don't think every scrape is – every scrape is not created equal. But certain ones when you get spidey sense, if you pinwheel out, all of a sudden you'll find that bed that they'll use as like that rut bed. And so that's what I found last year. I could have never found it because it's so thick and swampy in this area. But whenever I walked in there to hang a camera two, three weeks or to check the camera I had in there two or three weeks ago, I went back to see where that deer was at. And sure enough, there's a bed there. There's a down log. There's an easy way for him to get in, an easy way for him to get out. It's like a perfect setup, right? And so that's the other thing I started doing. Like even in the summer when I find those areas, I just kind of pinwheel out and see if I can't locate a bed that's somewhere close by. Lately, I've been telling you guys about Land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own where you can do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with family you want. Land can be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space.
Are you looking for relentless performance for your firearms? If so, Riptide Armory is the ultimate destination for superior gun cleaning and protection. Riptide Armory offers American-made, innovative products out of Arvada, Colorado. Whether it's the delicate finish of a collectible or the rugged exterior of a tactical weapon, you can clean without risk of damage. Visit RiptideArmory.com and discover the difference true quality can make for your firearms. Riptide Armory, a veteran-founded business. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. You bring up an interesting point there, and I, I'm, I look at like probably ninety five percent of scrapes like they do me no good, yeah. Like, but the one, the five percent that do, I really like, and they're yeah. always tied. Like what you're talking about, you treat them a little bit differently than I do, but you, what you're saying is, you have this community scrape. It's at a, it's it's in a spot where a buck can bed downwind. He can wait for the action to come to him. He doesn't have to go to it. He could probably wait for the little scrappers to chase by and engage that situation mm-hmm. or whatever. Yep. But all of that is tied to some kind of travel hub. Like all 100%. of it is tied to a place where the deer just like to go and be. So mm-hmm. what you're saying is like that scrape is like it, it tips you off. Like it's like. <laughs> That's the one thing where you're like, okay, now I need to investigate this spot. But most people think, well, there's a big community scrape here with a good looking branch. I'm going to hunt this. But what does that scrape like signify? Like what's going on okay. in that area that like matters more? And what it is, is it's a hub. It's those are going to be located in a place where deer move morning and evening. Yep. And for multiple reasons, they come through there usually from different directions and there's just like a high odds chance of being around traveling deer where those show up. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's like the, you know, when I was a kid, you'd hang out in the parking lot of like the Burger King or whatever. It's the Burger King hangout for deer. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> they're just, you know, it's like, there's so many things that kind of connect in those spots. It's like if you're in hill country, it's oftentimes it's some type of thermal hub, right? It's a lot of times where multiple ridges are kind of coming together and they're all kind of dumping down into this bottom at the same spot. Right. And it's really easy for the deer to be able to smell everything that's happening on every ridge. And so all of a sudden a lot of deer congregate, congregate there and then they start leaving sign there. Their scent is there. They lay down a scrape and that becomes like a central, central hub. I a hundred percent agree with you. Like they're not all huntable. What I do going back to what we were talking about with summer, what I'll use, you know, if you're like me and you're a working guy 
I have to time my hunts and be very strategic about the days I'm going to get out. Right. And so that's why I focus a lot on scrapes because I can usually predict not what's going to happen directly at that location, although sometimes I can, but I can predict what's going to happen in the general area much better if I have a really good scrape in that spot to kind of start to be my barometer for the area, if you will. Right. And so what I'll do during the summer and what I'll use summer for is I hang my cameras on those scrapes, you know, and people are like, well, you're hanging cameras on scrapes in the summer. It's like, well, yeah, but what I want to see is that if there aren't any deer hitting it during the summer, then I'm like, okay, that's just like a, a rut, pre-rut scrape. It might be decent. It might not be. If it's not connected to something else that's nearby that's really kind of trips my trigger, then it's probably not worth a hunt unless there's like a terrain feature that's close by that like is really good that I want to, that I want to hunt. But if I get deer hitting that thing almost daily during the summer, I'm like, this is like a main kind of artery for deer activity, regardless of whether it's that scrape, the things in this area is, this, is, is a play or is, is, are things that are drawing deer to it on a daily basis, yep. regardless if it's does, you know, bucks and velvet, whatever the case is, deer just want to be here. So whenever I see that, that's whenever I start to pay a lot of attention to it. And it's not like they hit it once or twice. It's like I'm looking for multiple days a week during out of season, right, that they're hitting these scrapes. And those are the ones I'll prioritize. And I try to find those on every piece I have. And then what I do is I, I use that summer intel. I watch the fawn drops. I try to find if there's an early fawn drop, which the one I do know that I have is an early fawn drop. So that's why the 18th of every October I'm in that spot. Because the past two years I've had an encounter with my shoot with my target deer on the 18th in that spot, right? Because that doe's getting ready to come in and she's bred somewhere between the 15th and the 20th. And so I use the fawn drop data during the summer for the upcoming hunting season to kind of know when these spots are going to come in. And then I watch them during the rut as well to understand, you know, when are these doe groups actually cycling in? You know, because they'll cycle in the same every year. And so I just watch these scrapes and I start dating these scrapes going, all right, this week for this scrape, this week for this scrape, this week for this scrape. And then I don't waste my time hunting in an area where I don't have those that are warming up that are going to attract deer for me. You can't bait in PA. I wouldn't anyway. But that's the closest thing you can get to getting an attractant to bring a buck in is to know when those does estrus states are. And I do that by kind of, you know, just dating the scrapes. Man, that's that's high level. Uh I want to take a step back here a second. Yeah. And because you, you brought up something a while ago that I made a note on that I want to talk about because I've been thinking about it a lot. And you, you were talking about elevation and you were mm-hmm. talking about like the subtlety to terrain and like finding the difference of, you know, 10 feet in elevation or 20 feet or 30 feet, how important that is. And I'm starting to get to the point, this, this is something, you know, I grew up hunting the bluffs in Southeastern Minnesota and I'm, I'm, I love bluff country stuff. Like I like mm-hmm. the terrain traps and I like, I like that style, but where I live and I've lived the last 17 years is pretty freaking flat, mm-hmm. but not like pool table flat. And right. I started to just appreciate, you know, if there's a little bit of a rise in the woods or there's like, I'll, I'll give you an example. This, this kind of hit me right over the head, this Turkey season. So this farm that I've been Turkey hunting the last few years, uh, pretty flat, right? There's, there's not much to it, but there's one field on there. There's one field left that we can hunt because it's being developed and it's got this little rise in it that comes out of the woods. You know, there's a, it's kind of on the edge of a cattail swamp. It's actually kind of between two cattail swamps and it's maybe an elevation change of like six feet. But if you walk out on it, you can see everything on that side of the field. You can look from Mm -hmm. one end to the other 
And so scouting turkeys, I would see turkeys strut on there mm-hmm. all the time. And so right. this year, you know, I put a blind on there for the kids, took my daughter in there. She killed a bird in there, took my nephew in there. He killed a bird in there, took his dad in there. He killed a bird in there. Jeez. And it's, it's just a spot where they expect to see turkeys and mm-hmm. it, they're just so visible. So it's like a, it's got that going for it. And then I was thinking, you know, I'm like, man, the buck I shot last year with my muzzleloader was standing right here. Out of oh, all wow. the places he could have come out of the woods, he picked that. And he was a little scrapper, but he's like, there's that just difference. Because he knows if he walks out there, he can look down there all the way to the end of the field. And he can look the other way to the end of the field. And I think we don't appreciate how like tuned into those tiny little elevation differences all those deer are out there. Yeah. It's, it's hunting the flat kind of terrain is is something that it drives me crazy to be honest with you. You know, and it was something I had to get used to locally because locally where I live in Eastern PA is flat where I hunt in the North, you know, there's, there's mountains. And so it's, it's very like there's extremes, right? The here it's like, you know, you don't even rarely get that little five, five foot, 10 foot elevation change here. It's like, you know, you're dealing with primarily, you know, using transition lines and, and you know, and, and hard edges that are set by swamps or whatever, whatever the case is. But I think sometimes, you know, I, I was talking to, there was a fellow I talked to from Virginia and he hunts a very similar kind of terrain where it's a lot of flat, but just like with little knobs and knolls. And he was like, anything that had like five to 10 foot of elevation, man, he's like, you could almost, they might not be bedded there, but they're going to, they're going to spend time there. And something kind of, I don't remember if he's the one who said it or if someone else mentioned it to me. It's like, we often forget that deer a lot of times want, the, want the same things we want. You know, it like we want to be fed. We want to be safe. We want cover a house or, you know, a shelter of some sort, right? They're looking for the same things. They just go about getting it a little bit differently. We want to be able to see, right? We want to be able to observe. Well, they want the same, they want the same thing, you know what I mean? And so they'll go to the place where they can. It's not, it's not a, when you think about it that way, it's not a surprise if you're thinking about, you know, the, the hunting beast style of things, right? The Dan Enfold approach of like, you know, uh, setting up on like the leeward edge of a, of a ridge, knowing that deer want to spend time there. It's like, well, yeah, they're going to bed with the wind that's coming over their back and they're going to look down directly where they came from. Cause now they're covered in all directions, right? It's like the one reason is because they got the visual, right? It's like, and I think we oftentimes discount the visual element of their protection because we focus so much on their smell, the smell aspect. We spend so much time trying to beat their nose. I think we oftentimes get beat by their eyes, you know, and that's been true for me, you know, in, in Kansas for sure, you know, cause I, you know, I've been to Kansas the past two years. I, I drew the tag again this year to go back. And that's the hardest part for me out there. It's like, I, I've been within bow range and we'll say 15 feet or I'm sorry, 15 yards and under all three years, but I've gotten beat by their eyes and never once have I been beaten by their nose yet. You know what I mean? And so that to me was a thing that kind of just pointed out to me, like there's little rises, there's little changes in elevation, especially when you're out there, make all the difference, you know, between you being skylit or them skylighting themselves or them getting into like a little, you know, um, a little ditch and they're 200 yards away and you're glass them and then they seemingly disappear in something that looks flat. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just those little undulations and we overlook them, but you know, we'd be fools to think that the deer don't know exactly where those things are at <laughs> and know exactly when and how to use those. Oh man. I, when you, when you talk about that stuff, I think about so many situations in my life. And I think one of the easiest ways to understand this is if you have the opportunity 
to glass in the summer. So, you know, mm-hmm. sit that alfalfa field, sit that bean field, whatever, and watch what you see. And, and, and so pay attention because we go out and we go, I want to find that bachelor group and I want to watch them. But right. the real benefit besides finding them, of course, is how do they use the land? Like, mm-hmm. are, are they tucked into a little drainage to feed so you can't see them? Or like, how did they come out of the woods? Or how did they travel from one point of the woods to the other? When you start watching deer actually move through the landscape, it's not just a betting thing, man. Like, they're mm-hmm. using little, tiny, almost insignificant folds in the terrain to their advantage. And they they probably don't even think about it. It's probably just like a gene deep thing. But when you watch them do that stuff, it's the same thing. Like I talked about the turkeys, like, Oh yeah, they strut in a field. No, they strut right there. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. They, <laughs> that they you, spot. yeah, you right. can see them anywhere at any given point, maybe, but if you want consistency, which is what we're all looking for when we're scouting, we're not looking for a one-off encounter. We're looking for high odds places that stuff matters so much. And so, yeah, like you said earlier, the the advantage of betting, you know, I mean, if there's a six foot rise and it's otherwise flat, that's a better spot for them to bed than almost anywhere else. Just, yeah. just for that, because if they can use the prevailing wind and they can use their eyes and they're just a little bit above everything else, that's a win. Like, yeah. and if they can travel in certain ways and use that stuff, the more that you figure that kind of stuff out, like the more you figure out how they use the terrain that way, like it just opens up a different world to you. And you can take that, like you said, you know, you go from Pennsylvania to Kansas, your your scouting opportunities are so vastly different. But yeah. those little usages of the terrain and you know, those those deer that live in open country will teach you a lesson about how they use like a little fold in the terrain. I mean it it is mind blowing when you hunt them in that open terrain, how easily they can disappear or how many deer can hide from you where you're like, there's no way. Like I would see every coyote out there and then mm-hmm. you, you figure it out and you go, man, there was, there was a whole little herd of them in the same section as me that I had no idea until I walked over this little lip of a ridge. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, you're hundred percent right, man. And there's, there's like an approach that I have, like whenever I'm, you know, e-scouting for Kansas that I kind of like don't want to say I developed it. Actually, I, I kind of, I won't say I learned it, but I kind of was tipped off by just through a conversation with Eddie Claypool. I know you're good buddies with, with Eddie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but to go back to, before I get to that, the one thing about terrain, like, so when I'm talking, thinking about that North piece, those small little kind of undulations or high spots, they become really, really important, especially the spot that I'm going to be spending a lot of time in this summer and then hunting this fall in and around those swampy areas, because that little three foot, five foot rise, that is the primo bedding opportunity in those wet in those wet areas. And that's also in those areas where I'll find those land bridges that are kind of connecting two swamps or like the passageway between two swamps and stuff like that. And that's really the only high ground until you get out of the swamp, right? And so it's those things that kind of dictate the movement of the deer, dictate the bedding opportunities and stuff like that. And so it's, I start to try to focus on those things. The second part in that big woods piece that I started kind of focusing in on are almost like these big, like what I'll call like just big drainages or big draws that are kind of cut into the side of the mountain where it probably has a stream runoff in it whenever there's a bunch of melt in the, in the winter or whatever. Um, what I've found is that I found a lot of trails and sign that are following, following those drainages almost up to the top of those drainages. And so I started kind of focusing in on those and lo and behold, found a hammer scrape whenever I was there, like the mid-ish May, hung a cell camera on it. And sure enough, 
a deer that had like pop can sized bases already and it was already split in a brow on like May 11th showed up on that scrape, you know? So there were two things there. It was like that draw is kind of dictating the movement. Right. And also a scrape there knowing that, okay, there's a, there's a terrain feature there. It's also near a logging road or like a bench that they're using. So there's two, you know, avenues of travel and then deer are using it during the summer consistently. And so I'm like, Yahtzee. I'm like, that is a spot that I'll be spending time. And it's a bitch to get into because you have to climb the side of a mountain. So the thermals are really kind of odd where you can really only get in in the morning when your thermals are falling. And it's an all-day hunt. Like you can't really get in in the afternoon to hunt it. It's got to be a morning sit and an all-day or a morning hunt and you're out type of thing. But pivoting to, to the, the Kansas thing, the thing I started – like so – I, I live too far away from Kansas to, to drive there to, to scout during the summer. Um, the first year we were fortunate. My buddy Chad went out and he actually turkey hunted the first year before we went there. And so we got a little bit of the lay of the land a little bit. Um, but you know, what I really kind of have to rely on is just looking at maps over the course of the summer and it's all walk-in access stuff. So it's not like, you know, I have like a big piece of private or a big chunk of public that I'm going to have 50,000 acres to hunt. I'm going to be hopping pieces. So it's a lot of like looking at small parcels and stuff like that. And what I started doing was really kind of focusing on areas that have a drainage system that kind of runs through it. And what I kind of figured out with talking with Eddie the one time is we were kind of talking about it. And, you know, Eddie's a little bit of a different animal where he goes out in like the middle of like a blue stem patch and like field and will sit up in like the only tree that's out there and the deer will just magnetically walk toward that tree. Right. Um, but I was asking him about bedded bucks and he was like, well, he's like bedded bucks, you know, you know, oftentimes during the rut, because he knew I was going out there in the rut, he's like, you know, they'll cut these does out and they'll take them to the head, heads of these drainages. You know what I mean? I was like, okay. He's like, but it's not the main drainage. He's like, when you look at, you get in there and you look at a drainage, he's like, there's drainages that have like these little offshoots, like tributaries that are running off of them and stuff like that. He's like, it's usually in one of those like secondary offshoots off the main drainage because they're usually the most brushy he's like and that's usually where they'll want to cut deer out to i just kind of paused for a second and i was like shoot i was like that drainage is just an inverted ridge i was like and so those offshoots of those secondary kind of tributaries of that drainage is like our secondary ridges he's like well by god you're right you know (laughs) it's like one of those things like i never thought of it that way and so then all of a sudden it made sense to me on how to scout it and how to look at it because it was just an upside down ridge And those, you know, if you have a west wind, that east side, you know, uh, tributary off of that main drainage, that's your spot. You know what I mean? Because that's the the place where they're going to have everything under under control. They're going to smell everything. They're going to see what they need to see. You got to backdoor it, but that's the area they're going to want to play. And so I've seen that kind of play out the past uh, last year because I relied on that approach was just like scouting you know, uh, East scouting and kind of finding these drainages and then heading to those drainages to the heads of those and kind of looking for those kind of like offshoots and then kind of setting up in those areas. And that's where I was having my encounters and where I was seeing, you know, and if I wasn't having the encounter, I was glassing the deer in those areas before I went in to actually make a move. When you, when you're hunting them, are you sitting on the ground? Uh, yeah, hundred, hundred percent on the ground for yeah. those. No trees to get yeah. into. No, no. I mean, there was one tree in the, this creek bottom I was able to get into, a, a thorny-ass locust tree. And, you know, I did that like one day and I was like, yep, not doing that again. And But all my encounters have been on the ground. You know, it's like I've not had any good encounters with quality, you know, um, with good age structure deer. I've had like the one day I was in a tree the first year I was there and I had like a decent buck kind of like walk right underneath of me. But like, uh, anything that I was willing to draw my bow back on have all been on the ground. 
Yeah. And I mean, there's uh, an obvious reason for that, right? Like <laughs> I was in spot, I was in spots that are just hard to wiggle your way into, yeah. you know what I mean? It was like, you know, and that's the name of the game out there is like, you try to find, cause you think it's all flat, but there's a lot more role to it than, than you think, you know? And so you really kind of have to examine, especially when you're doing all your e-scouting and kind of like be very mindful of like that little rise, that little roll is a big deal when you get out there. Like I look at it and if I have my Pennsylvania brain on, I overlook it. Yep. But I got to kind of shift my mindset when I start looking at that stuff over the summer as I'm getting ready to go out there. Cause like a lot of times I'll be like, eh, I'm not dropping a pin there. Then I have to go, Hey, put your Kansas brain on. You need to drop a pin there. You need to probably walk that. Cause that's probably a little bit more significant than you think it is, yeah. you know? And so that's really my approach for out there. Dude, that is a, a real common problem. If you, if you head to a state like Kansas and you haven't hunted that kind of terrain, you know, I mean, obviously not the whole state's like that, but you look at it like e-scouting and you go, okay, you know, there's a drainage here, whatever. Like I'll go glass that quick and I'll check this spot mm-hmm. out and there's a few trees in the creek bottom here. And then you get out there and you see the scope of that terrain. And it's it's big country yeah. where, you know, those drainages are way bigger than you think. and And yet you still have the opportunity to blow everything out so fast. So it's like a weird, like, you're right. You have to kind of reconfigure how you look at this stuff. It's not like you're walking into a section of timber and you're like, I'm going to find a concentration of sign and start hunting. It's a totally different animal. And I think it's so important to try to hunt different styles like that or different, different terrain, because it just teaches you like what you think, you know, <laughs> you know, like you said, when you're, when you look at that stuff on your East scouting, you're like, ah, maybe, maybe not. And then you go look at it in real life and you're like, man, I just dismissed the better part of half a section because e-scouting, it doesn't look like the stuff I typically e-scout. Then you get out there in the real world and you're like, you could tuck 5,000 booners in there and not be able to see them from the road. You know, like it's a different thing. I I love that kind of stuff because it just challenges you to like your worldview (laughs) changes a lot when you start getting into that kind of stuff. Yeah. So whenever I'm, whenever I'm in Kansas, you know, or a place that has that, you know, just flat terrain, you know, my focus really in, in, in e-scouting and stuff is really primarily on figuring out how to try to find a spot to get into an area that I want to hunt so I can actually glass and get a visual before I kind of tromp into a place, you know, just because you don't know what's kind of, you know, laying in the head of that draw or, or what's out in this CRP field that you kind of need to make your way through or whatever the case, keeping the wind in your face is the easy part out there. The hard part is trying to get to a visual vantage point because everyone thinks it's flat, but it's not, you know, so it's trying to figure out how to get into a spot without blowing everything out. So I can actually glass and get a visual on where I want to get to without alerting the deer that I'm trying to kill that I'm at, that I'm there. You know, and so that to me is kind of the the game within the game <laughs> out there, so to speak, um, and really where a lot of my time is spent, you know, e-scouting. Well, and what that makes me think of and a lot of the stuff you've said is we, we look at deer scouting is like, I got to find the deer. I got to find mm-hmm. my target buck or I got to find a bachelor group or I got to find a concentration of deer. But that's like foundational, like that's like basics, like sure. Mm-hmm. You want to know he lives there or you, he walked through there one time or whatever, but like figuring out how to hunt those spots is what scouting does for you. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to identify a target buck and give him a name. Good enough. Like, no. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about this Kansas thing, finding where the deer should be is pretty easy. 
Like you can, yeah. you can East Coast and look at it and go, you know, like there probably should be a concentration in this drainage and a concentration in that one. But figuring out how to work against that disadvantage of you being so much more visible than they are, even though it's open country and theoretically you kind of should be on the same level, you're not. Like that's what the scouting, like that's what that's what you need to figure out. Like you need to figure out how to how to get in there without them seeing you because their advantage there is so much greater. You know, it's different yeah. than when you're home at Pennsylvania and you're like, I can walk through the woods and a lot of stuff's not going to be able to see me because I'm in the woods. Now I got to figure yeah. out where are they going to go to find does or where are they going to go to get away from the rest of the pressure. Like that's a different game than scouting that Kansas ground, you know, like mm-hmm. finding a buck there. And I think, I think we've kind of done a disservice to the like hunting community by there's been a lot of hunting content <laughs> that comes out of like spot and stock Kansas bucks. And right. you're looking at guys finding a buck, getting in there and shooting it. And it's action packed and it looks amazing, but you're not looking at the days and days of glassing where they're just not on them or they're seeing deer where they're like, there's a great buck. I have no chance of getting anywhere near him and I got to go find something else. It is not, it looks easy when it's mm-hmm. distilled down to a YouTube video and that shit is tough. Yeah. It's uh, it was, it was eye opening for me, man. And it, it, it's maybe a better hunter, you know, cause your earlier point, you know, we focus so much of the scouting on finding the deer where that's actually the easiest part. Like if you think about it, cause they're laying down sign and they're telling you where they're at. They're telling you where they're spending time. They may not tell you exactly what time of year. That's like you have to do your due diligence, maybe sit, hang some cameras, do some observation sets, you know, scout during the season, whatever the case is. But the finding the deer part is the easy part. The figuring out how to like get in there with close enough to get them killed without them knowing that you're there, that's where the scouting actually takes place, right? Because then it becomes – that's really when you're battling your wits against the deer's wits. You know what I mean? Because I'm, I think I know how you're using this area. I need to, I need to kind of pull a fast one on you, make you think I'm not there while I'm there, you know, and try to use your senses against you to a degree is what you're kind of doing. Right. And then, so that's a very much like a Pennsylvania or just like a, a timbered kind of approach, right? You see the sign you know, the deer's in the area, you figure out how you get your, you, you know, your access, et cetera, et cetera. When you're in Kansas, you know, those flat areas, Finding the deer is really easy. It might take some driving around, right? But you're just glassing, sitting behind your binos, watching, and you're finding where they're at. And then then becomes the chess match, right? Especially if you're out there during the rut. Might be a little – I might take your advice this year. I might go out in October. (laughs) So (laughs) we'll see. Because, you know, during the rut, it's like – so I found – you didn't just find a buck most likely. You likely found a buck in two or three does that he's pushing around. Right. If it's, you know, a dominant buck, you might find some peckerheads running around by themselves or nudging a doe around, you know, running around like they're lost. But if it's a mature deer, at least what I've seen out there, they usually they're pushing two or three around because there's a small doe group that has a hot doe and he's pushing them around. And eventually he's going to cut her out, but he's just pushing the whole group around until it comes time. And now you're trying to beat him, which he's not as hard to beat because he's kind of an idiot at that point. You know, still not easy. But then you've got his lady friend and whatever other lady friends that she might be hanging out with that you're having to beat at the same time. And that's where the game really kind of gets interesting. That's where you start to kind of how far can I push the envelope? You know, uh, is rattling going to work to try to entice him? Is decoying going to tick him off to get him to come in? That's when you have to start kind of reading the deer. So this is like the next level of scouting. It's not just 
find the deer. Okay, now I got in. The next step is I can't close the distance. How do I how do I get him in range? Right. And so it's just I've fallen in love with it because there's so many layers to that game that you don't sometimes get to play in timbered areas. Man, you're you're so right on all this stuff. I want I want to back up a second and talk about the the finding the deer thing that you went through just a little bit ago because I think this is maybe the biggest disservice that widespread trail camera usage has given us. Like it is not that hard to get a picture of a good buck. Like I don't mm-hmm. care where you live, where you hunt. If you got a little bit of, you know, a little bit of horsepower between your ears, at some point in the summer or at some point in the fall, you can probably get a picture of a buck that would make you real happy. You know, that mm-hmm. might be a 110 somewhere and it might be a 170 somewhere else, but you can do it. And we've kind of convinced ourselves that that's good enough. Like mm-hmm. that's, you know, we, we've got it figured out then. And it doesn't mean anything until you scout enough to figure out how to hunt them. Like it yeah. doesn't, you know, it's the same thing like you said about, you know, if you're out in Kansas and you glass up 160 incher out there in the pasture, great. Like what's next? Like that's awesome. It's fun. Mm-hmm. But what's next? I mean, I, what it reminds me of, got you know, like for a long time in the in the turkey hunting world, you'd hear people say like, "Oh, roosted is you know, like roosted is roasted," and then it kind of changed like roosted isn't necessarily roasted anymore. It's like because it doesn't take that long for you go out there and you have that bird gobbling his ass off 100 yards away and you don't kill him and then it happens again and he doesn't fly down your decoys you go okay this is this is not enough like there wasn't enough to my setup or you know like your your example with a buck with a couple does like you're competing with a bird that has a couple hens roosted with him now it's a different story like Mm -hmm. so much of this stuff we go good enough i figured i found the scrape i found the fence crossing they like i got a picture of three big ones on this trail in august it's over it's like no like that's the start and like i i'm continually reminded of that when i talk to guys like you and andy may and some of these people who are real obsessed with scouting because it's not you know like it's it's always starts with i found this then like i found him then or i found this spot then and then it goes into this long process like maybe a multi-year process of like now I got to figure out how to hunt it. Or somebody will be like, you know, you drew your Kansas tag and you're like, oh my God, this world of hunting these plains deer is so vastly different. Like it started there. Like now yeah. all of a sudden this journey to scout started with just getting that tag or like walking into the big woods when you're used to hunting, you know, egg country and going, holy shit, like I have a, a new world, but it, it's not, it's not, it doesn't hinge on just finding the deer and done. Like there's like, that's just like the, you're opening the door. Like you were standing on the porch, you knocked, they let you in and now you got to go. Like it's totally different. Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting. Cause I've kind of done myself a disservice. Well, first I want to say, you know, for people listening, like I'm not one of these guys who's, it's like not 170 inch deer or bust, right? It's whatever's going to get me excited. You know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I like big deer, don't get me wrong, but I'm not into the, into the quote unquote horn porn. You know, that's not my, that's not my game. You know, if a good 130 plus inch deer walks by me, you know, out in Kansas, you know, and I get a crack at him, you know, awesome. I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take a shot. Um, but you know, 
what you were kind of saying around the, the, the game just kind of beginning, like I kind of started my game almost completely over whenever I kind of tackled the Big Woods piece and I started going to Kansas at the same time. So it was two brand new kind of areas, you know, where I was like, I went into those seasons knowing that like, it's going to be a while. You know what I mean? Like if I, if I really want to consistently be able to hunt this big woods piece, I gotta, I gotta be committed to it. And I just got to spend my time here and know that it's probably going to be a couple season endeavor before it happens. And then the Kansas piece was a big slice of humble pie because, you know, I'd been to the, you know, Iowa and Ohio and I've killed deer in those areas that have, you know, more target rich environment, more so than PA and stuff like that. And so I was like, Kansas, you know, we should get it, should get it done. And, um, this will be my third year back and I've had three deer that I've been, uh, either at full draw on or within, you know, 15 yards and under that the smallest one was like mid one forties and <laughs> being 15 yards or closer to a caliber of that deer on the ground and just not being able to get an arrow in him has just been extremely humbling, you know? <laughs> Because it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, the first year out there, like I was playing it all wrong. You know what I mean? Like I was just, I was just like one of those, it was like I turned 21 and someone took me to the strip club for the first time. Got a wad of ones. I'm like, what's up? You know, that's, that was how I was doing it, you know? And I blew a bunch of hunts. And you know, the last day of that hunt, I actually had a really good deer, you know, probably borderline 150 inch deer. And he got within 15 yards and he caught my thermal, you know, and I was hung out to dry in the middle of nothing. And then last year, you know, I had one that was, you know, one forties, you know, clean eight, awesome deer. It was a hunt on a whim at the head of a draw, like, right. Working the wind correctly. And, uh, I, uh, I clipped a small branch when I went to draw back my, my arrow hit a, hit a small twig and that was in front of me and it bounced, the arrow bounced off my, off my, uh, off my uh, rest and he heard it and snapped his head around and he was gone. You know, I was at full draw on that deer. I'm, I've never wanted to throw a bow so bad in my life. Like that one almost went for a ride. Like I was so mad. And then, so this is where like the game comes in. So, so I started learning, I started being more patient. That's why I had that really good encounter there. And then the first day that I was there, I just glassed the whole first day I was there and I kind of started figuring out how they were using the head of this one draw. And I saw the second day when I was taught, you know, I, I walked in during a little bit of daylight and I, and I ended up glassing from about 200 yards away from me up the CRP toward the head of that draw. Like the reason why you go to Kansas, like I ended up seeing him, you know, I ended up being close enough to him. He was 160 plus odd inch, like mainframe 10, you know, junk Oliver's bases, like awesome deer. And so I saw him and from the previous year. And watching him with those does, I knew that he was going to cut that doe out and he was going to go breeder. And I probably wasn't going to see him for like three to five days, roughly, right? Depending on like how close she was to being bred. He was going to lock down with her for three and that was, you know, and then he'll be back. And so I ended up hunting a bunch of other areas because I didn't get a shot at him. I got about as close as 75 yards and couldn't rattle him in. And he walked off with her and I didn't see him again. I kept an eye on that draw every day. I would kind of check it. We didn't see him. And I was like, the last day of the hunt, I was like, this would be the day he should come off that, that doe. And so I just played it patient. I didn't bust up that draw. I didn't mess with it. I glassed it, just kept tabs on those deer, hunted some other spots. The last day I went up to the head of that draw, stayed inside the draw because it was the last day I was going to be there. So I didn't care if my scent was on that draw anymore. Walked up the head of that draw, went to a tree that I'd picked out, this locust tree that he was kind of when I'd seen him previously, he walked in front of me. When I glassed other deer, they were always walking in front of this one tree. So I'm using other deer to tell me what deer want to do in that spot, not necessarily just him. 
this is again where the scouting part comes in, right? It's like, you're just trying to take the pieces that you can find. And I walked to that tree, walked up out of the draw and there was a deer grunting to my right and there was deer grunting to my left and there was enough like moonlight just starting to get a little bit daylight to where I could start to see a little bit. And I saw deer out in front of me and net net was, there was a buck to my right that was grunting. There was a doe in front of me. And then there was the deer that I was after that was with her. And he was standing right behind the tree I was trying to get to. He's at 30 yards and I can see his frame. And I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. What are the chances we both show up at the same spot at the same time? Right. I don't have enough shooting light. I tried to wait him out. He was kind of prancing around, getting nervous because that other buck was grunting. I have no, I never saw that buck. I just heard him grunting. And so I think he thought I was a deer because I had the back, had the back, like the darkness of the draw behind me. And he had like the skylight behind him. So I could see him. He couldn't see me. And I'm, and my wind was in my favor. And so I think he thought I was a deer. So I started grunting, grabbed my grunt call and shuffling my feet and got behind a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. And I made it to the hat. And I got knelt down and got an arrow knocked. And I was like, if I can just get like another five minutes of daylight and if I can get him to step in front of where I knew these saplings were, I was like, then I have a shot. And so I got the five minutes that I needed. He snort wheezed at me. He still thought I was a buck. I snort wheezed back at him. He postured up, started walking toward me and he walked right to the edge of where those saplings were at and just stood there. He was at like 20 yards. And I just, I just did not have enough light to get a clear pin to be able to, to one, have a clear pin and two, be able to see exactly where those saplings were at. So I didn't like clip one yep. and have a deflected arrow hit him and have a bad situation. So I ended up just watching him walk out of my life. But <laughs> that's, you know, that's, you know, that's the humbling kind of nature of hunting somewhere like that and talking about like the game just starts when you find them. It's the scouting you have to do in between to figure out how you're going to put yourself with like in their world. Yeah. Right. It's not just being, it's not like, it's not being in their, in on their planet. You know what I mean? Like I want to be in his house, you know? And so that's, that's where the game really kind of comes into play. And then when I left that night, it was the last night in Kansas. I'm driving out and uh, I saw him in my headlights and he's running beside my truck, full Kansas gallop through a cut cornfield chasing a doe right beside me. And I just see like all these antlers. And that was when I got the best look at him because I was like right on top of him. I was like, you got to be freaking kidding me. Lately, I've been telling you guys about Land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own where you can do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with family you want. Land can be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide, a veteran-founded business. It's dedicated to producing American-made cleaning chemicals and also dedicated to creating American jobs. And that commitment is embodied in every product that's bottled, labeled, and shipped from their Arvada, Colorado facility. 
safe for all firearm types and surfaces. Embrace the power of American ingenuity and protect your firearms with the best. Visit RiptideArmory.com. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. You bring up a, a point we don't we don't talk about very often. Like I, I wrote an article last month and I, for Meat Eater, and I've, I've been I've been pounding this drum pretty hard about finding another place to hunt. And so, you know, what you're talking about is something not everybody can do, right? Like, not everybody's going to leave Pennsylvania and go hunt Kansas. Like, a lot of people are staying home, right? Yeah. And the goal that we've been shown in whitetail hunting for so long is get a spot you can manage. And make it so you don't have to scout anymore. They're going to come to the food plot. They're going to go through certain, you know, terrain traps or whatever. Run some cameras, keep tabs on them, but you don't have to scout anymore. But you don't necessarily get a lot better without getting your ass kicked. Like when you're talking about your first time in Kansas and you're doing everything wrong, that's like a powerful motivator to figure new stuff out that you can bring home with you. And you don't need to travel 17 states away to do it. Like I... I think one of the biggest problems people have with whitetails is we limit ourselves to our spot. Like I mm-hmm. hunt this place, this farm or whatever. And it's like, great. You know, like that's, that's great. But w- like, how are you limiting yourself? Like, are you limiting yourself on opportunities? If you have like the 40 acres you hunt and there's 10,000 acres of public land down the road, like you could probably level up your game a lot scouting wise and hunting wise by, by putting yourself in that position where you're like, I don't know what's going on here and I have to figure it out. I think that's like the, one of the things, you know, you, you hear a lot of like negativity out there on people in the hunting industry and being like, oh, they're ruining everything. And I'm like, whatever, right? You know, that's a different topic. But I also look at it and I go, right. these are some of the best hunters you're ever going to meet in your life because they're going to places all the time where they have no history where they have to scout on the fly or they have to really bring up their e-scouting game and figure it out. And we can all do that on some level. Yeah, you might not be able to go hunt seven states a year. Like most people can't, but you might be able to find a place an hour down the road or maybe you live in, you know, southern Michigan and you could hunt northern Michigan. You know, like maybe you could do something that's still on your resident tag but forces you to go... I'm not just going to go sit on the same cornfields. I'm not going to go sit on the same ponds. Like I'm going to go scout and figure this stuff out. Cause when you start challenging yourself that way, 
man, things change. And you, like, you get your ass kicked a lot, but you're getting better while you're doing it. Yeah, it, to me, as, as odd as it might sound, getting my ass handed to me is part of what I like about some of these trips and hunting in these different different areas. You know, to your point, man, like you don't need to travel three, six, five, however many states states away. You know, just finding a pocket of your your home state that just offers a different a different scenario, you know, is is often enough. You know, like for me, I look forward like even like locally, I don't hunt the same spots over and over again. Like. I can only think of one, two spots all of last season locally that I've hunted in the past. Like every other spot that I hunted last year was, was, uh, was a fresh sit was new. Like I'd never, I'd scouted it. I'd hung a camera, checked cameras in the summer, scouted in the summer a little bit, and then just went in and hunted it. Right. And that's just kind of what I like to do. I want to fill this freaking Kansas tag <laughs> this year because I want to go to a different state and I'm determined to fill the tag before I, or fill a Kansas tag before I venture off to another state because I've never been to Nebraska. I want to go to I want to go to Nebraska. I've never been to Oklahoma. I want to go to Oklahoma. I've never been to Minnesota. I want to go to Minnesota. Never been to Wisconsin. I want to go there. You know what I mean? So it's I just like to I just like to experience brand new stuff. And for me, you know, going back to what we said earlier, you know, adaptability being your best ability, I just always want to kind of keep that at the forefront and force myself to continue to adapt. Um, because whenever I'm in comfortable areas, it makes that a willingness to be uncomfortable and have to adapt makes the game a little easier in some of those spots that I have familiarity with, you know, and that's why I think, you know, there's a time and place for everything, you know, um, whether it's food plot building, you know, smarter mousetrap. And I think that for people who have access to that, I think that's great. I think that's a great way to kind of start to, to understand what deer like to do because you, you maybe see deer more often, right? Cause I know you and I've talked about like, you got to be around deer to learn deer, right? So if you have a hard time finding deer and you have a situation like that where you can just be around deer and observe and watch, like that's a great way to kind of cut your teeth and then take it into like, you know, a piece of big woods or like a piece of public land that's close to your home or whatever. And then start to see how some of what you knew starts to fall apart maybe just a little bit. but And then what parts you have to kind of like sharpen because there were skills that you had, but they weren't quite where they needed to be honestly to 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 kill a deer that everyone else has access to, or that's not set up for you to, to, to put them in a certain spot where they're doing exactly what they want to do. And you're on their terms, you know? And so I think there's a time and place for stuff, but I a hundred percent agree with you, man. It's like when you force yourself to go do unfamiliar stuff, you have no choice, but to, but to get better. Like that's when you're uncomfortable, you're growing. If you're not, if you're, if you're not, if you're comfortable, then you're, then you're, then you're not progressing. It's kind of like the, the old saying. Oh man. And you, what you find out when you do that, and I, I don't care if you are traveling seven States away or you're hunting something, you know, a farm down the road, you've never hunted before. hundred percent. You start to, like you said, you start to realize the things that you believed are bullshit. And mm-hmm. man, I, my, you know, your, your obsession is getting that Kansas tag out of the way and moving on to another state. <laughs> I'm, I really got sucked into this this Western Minnesota thing. So I, I I hunted there last year for a few days during the rut. Got my ass handed to me. Saw a few does. Couldn't even get a forky near me. Like really mm-hmm. really got roughed up by it. But I'm like I'm around them. And then I went back and pheasant hunted a whole bunch again, which is the reason I wanted to hunt there. And I'm pheasant hunting properties that I deer hunted and I'm jumping bucks and it's pissing me off because I'm seeing good deer (laughs) right where I was hunting. And I go, 
people have told me my whole life it's not worth deer hunting here. And then I go pheasant hunt there and I'm seeing good deer consistently. Then I go deer hunt there and I get my ass kicked. And so I go, the disconnect here is not that there aren't good deer to hunt or enough deer to hunt or whatever, enough public land to hunt. It's it's all there. All of that is available. The disconnect was it's just really hard. And so it's easier to say it's not worth it than to actually go try to figure it out. But once you kind of get your like your claws stuck into something like that, like it's hard to not want to get better. And, you know, because yeah. I think and this is not everybody like I have buddies who they're like wired so vastly different for me for deer like they want a very consistent, pretty easy place to hunt. And that's like good for them. Like it's like Mm -hmm. they're working hard in their life and they want to go sit in a tree stand where they know if they put in their time, he's coming by. But for a lot of people, I think, you know, especially if you, you know, if you're listening to this podcast or reading our articles or whatever, you're, you're looking to level up, like you're looking to get this stuff figured out and man, hunting a new place is one way to get you to reframe your entire thought process on whitetails and, Kind of, kind of get rid of that stuff that you believe that just isn't true, and start figuring out what is true. And like that process doesn't end. Like you start getting yeah. hooked on it, and you're like, I want this more. And it just not only does it help you become a better deer killer, it just makes deer hunting more enjoyable. Like you're just problem yeah. solving. It's and for me too, in like a weird way, it like whenever that when I have that type of experience, I just feel way more connected to the, to the moment. I'm able to stay present more, if that makes sense. And like, that's been like kind of a mantra for me this year is like, you know, trying to be, you know, more, more present just in, just in general, like in my day-to-day life in, in, in hunting, um, being aware, you know, of my body's capabilities, you know, my capabilities, you know, as a, as a human, as a hunter. Um, and I was just, I, I kind of, I don't want to say long. It seems like a weird, dramatic word, but like I do long for that, like, like primal connection. And to me, like whenever I go out and I get lost in these places and I have to kind of figure it out, like that's when I feel connected as weird as that might sound like knowing jack shit is when I feel most connected, you know? And so much so that like I've toyed around with the idea of like switching to a trad bow just for the sole purpose of it being more primitive and being more connected and it becomes part of me and it's not, there's not really anything mechanical and there's nothing wrong with, I shoot a, a normal, you know, vertical bow, you know, it's, and I'm not poo pooing that cause you know, it, it's hard enough to try to do it with that. But like I'm yearning this, like this like primal connectivity that I seem to get whenever I'm in places like Kansas and I feel like I'm out of my element a little bit. And I'm on the ground, you know, and that's the other part that I love about it. when you go to these different places, they call for different tactics. You know, Kansas was a big switch for me because like I really never hunted off the on the ground much at all, you know, except whenever I'd hunt like elk or mule deer or whatever. And so it made me get proficient at being able to be on the ground and hunt, you know. And so now it's like I don't shy away from those ground setups when I'm in Pennsylvania. You know, it's like if there's a good spot and nobody can get to it and there's no trees, I'm like, hmm, this seems like a pretty good spot, right? Like because shouldn't be a lot of pressure in here. And so it makes you kind of, you know, basketball players would say like, you know, makes you, you know, get a bigger bag. You know, it's like you got a lot more handle, you know what I mean? So to speak. Right. You know? And so that's the other thing that I think it does, not just from like an academic kind of like mental, how you process this stuff. Cause it's new standpoint, but you start adding things to your arsenal because if not that hunt 
is going to be really long and hard, you know, until you start to try some of that stuff. And then, you know, the other part of for me is just, is just the connection to the, to the challenge, you know, and the personal connection to it. And, and it seems like the longer I go, the harder I want to make it because that's whenever I feel most connected and I feel most present is whenever, do you ever notice how when you're doing something really hard, like you become laser focused, like where you almost don't hear other stuff outside of you, yep. you know what I mean? And when something's really easy or comes naturally, right, you start to get distracted by, by things, right? And I think that's the one thing that I've really kind of come to understand and try to implement through like, you know, training jujitsu is that idea of like when something is really, really tough and I have to really try, man, my focus is, is laser sharp. And whenever it's not and something's easy, I, I don't perform as well. Yep. You know, so the, I meet the challenge and then I, I will perform down to my, to my opponent, if you will. Yep. Right. My best roles in the gym are always against guys who are way better than me. Not a surprise. Cause I'm trying to keep up. Right. Same thing with deer hunting. It's like, if I'm at some place, it's lazy, you know, just say at home, I'm a worse deer hunter at home than I am on the road. Like a hundred percent. Oh man. That is, that is something you learn so fast when you travel to hunt is how much you phone it in when you're at a place you, you think, you know, yep. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And you, like you mentioned, you know, kicking around the idea of hunting with a trad bow and, and you know, hunting, you know, going to Kansas and all of a sudden I got to sit on the ground. All of a sudden I'm going to, I'm going to decoy when you, you might never pick up a decoy in the big woods of Pennsylvania, right? Like it, all of a sudden yeah, you're out yeah. of your comfort zone. You're doing things different. I, I hunted for a few years with a trad bow back when I was in my twenties. And I'll tell you what, man, when you hear people talk about it and they go, well, you know, I'm not shooting a bow with training wheels on it. Like you always think it's just tied to like the, the distance that you can be accurate. Mm. Right. Yeah. That's part of it. You know, like when you, when you've got a recurve or a longbow up there, you're like, I want him at 15 yards quartered away. And I want, I want that dreamy shot. You know, like you're not sitting on the edge of a bean field, ranging it and go, well, if he comes through that row, he's 35 yards. I'll dial into that and shoot him. It's a different thing that way. But what, what really messed me up or at least forced me to rethink my setups was if you've got a recurve and it's, you know, 55 inches tip to tip or 60 inches, whatever it is. That shot that you would take behind the tree with a compound, you don't have it. Yeah. You can't get around there. Or, you know, it depends how you hold. I can't, I can't my bow. So I take up a lot of space. Mm -hmm. I'm not shooting straight up and down. Or just like when you're on the ground, like, oh, you're going to go get in a ground blind and do this now? Good luck. Right. Like, can't do it. You, You just have to think, like, now, how do I structure my setup? So not only is he going to be there at that range, I'm going to actually be able to draw on him and shoot him. It's a different thing. And it, I mean, I still, I I haven't done it in a long time. I'm going to go back eventually, probably when my job isn't tied to killing stuff. But it forced me to look at everything differently. And Mm -hmm. I didn't think it would. I'm kind of seeing the same thing taking my daughters when they crossbow hunt. I'm like, it's such an advantage that Mm -hmm. now it sort of takes away like three layers of difficulty. When you don't have to worry about drawing, Okay. Like, you know what I mean? So that goes a different way, but all of it forces you to think like, man, you know, what I was comfortable with one little variation in weapon or one little variation in like hunting styles. Now you've got a problem, you've got a problem solve in a totally different way. And it, like you Mm -hmm. said, it brings you into the moment. And I, man, I think that stuff's important. 
It hundred percent is, man. And it's like, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, getting older or whatever it is, but you know, the longer I do this and, and maybe for me too, like this year, you know, I kind of had a focus of some other stuff that I was, you know, focusing on trying to, trying to get better at. And I think it allowed me to kind of look at hunting a little bit differently. I think for a while I was getting wrapped up, you know, um, it was all consuming and I'm not saying it like that, you know, you shouldn't be dedicated and passionate about it. Cause I love, I love bow hunting. Right. But there's also a part of like, um, you sometimes need things that, that pull you away slightly that way, whenever you get in it, that the passion and everything is there. Right. Cause you and I've talked about this, like there's parts of this that suck. You know what I mean? There's parts of this that, that are a grind. Right. And to pretend that it's all rainbows and unicorns and stuff like that, it just is a, is a false narrative. And, and I was finding myself there where I was like, I love this stuff, but like, it's starting to wear on me a little bit because I do like hard hunts. You know what I mean? I do like the challenging stuff and that's the part that I love. But you know, there's a part of me that's like, I'm like, okay, this is, this is getting brutal. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) and so I had to kind of, you know, you and I've talked, like I started training a lot of jujitsu and that's the thing that kind of took me away from it, not away from it, but allowed me to kind of divert my attention to where it's like, I wasn't so obsessed. And that, that distance actually gave me clarity, more clarity, you know, and like, you'll hear a lot about this type of stuff and like leadership stuff. And it, it, it applies whenever you're talking about deer hunting, it's like, whenever things are kind of getting rough or whatever, it's like, you need to detach and assess, right? You need to be able to step back from yourself and almost look at yourself as though you're like a ghost, you know, and go like, what's going on here? Like what part of this is the part that you don't get joy out of any longer, right? And then define what that is, not saying that there was loss of joy in, 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 in deer hunting or whatever, but like what aspects were starting to grind on me, you know what I mean? And make me, you know, not love it as much as I maybe did three years ago. And it was that assessment where I was like, okay, cool. Let's just cut that shit out and awesome. And now it's gone, you know, and the part that I cut out was, was actually a personal thing where I felt compelled that I needed to be always doing something for it. Otherwise I was slacking. Right. And it was that idea that, and then I, what I realized was, was that I, I was doing that because I, I felt like these external pressures of like, you know, whether it was because I have a hunting podcast or whatever the case, I don't know exactly where they came from, but I was like, that's just, no one's expecting me to do that. I'm doing that to myself. Yep. And so once I removed that, you know, and was like, I'll do this whenever I, on my time, when I feel like it and whenever I want to do it, as opposed to whenever I feel obligated to do it, you know? And that was really what, and so it wasn't like I spent any less time doing it or thinking about it. It's just like, I allowed myself to be free to do it whenever the mood struck and it brought the joy back to it again. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so for me, that was like the idea of like the trad bow and stuff like that. Cause I was like, you know, I don't care if someone thinks that, you know, I'm killing something smaller than I should because I'm using a trad bow or I blew an opportunity cause I'm using a trad bow. It's like, I want the experience. Don't care what the other person thinks, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like, and, uh, and so, and that was kind of like, you know, it was good for me like to kind of detach train jujitsu. That's also a mental shift too, that really helps. Um, and now it's like, I'm like, I was sending you deer pictures, man. It's like, I'm geeked, man. It's like, like this season I'm like super pumped for, like, I'm just like probably more excited for this upcoming season than I've been probably in the past two. Dude. I I love that. And I, I think, you know, when you talk about when you, when you start to feel that this stuff sucks 
and it starts to be not fun. I mean, and if you're listening to this and you haven't hit that stage yet, just wait. It's coming. (laughs) Yeah. It's just sitting right up over the hill waiting for you to walk over, man. It's coming. (laughs) And for me, you know, a change of scenery does me really well, like a new kind of challenge, but also Mm -hmm. just just learning to trust the process. Because we always think like, if only I do this or if only I do that or if like it's going to happen. And the truth is it's probably not like Mm -hmm. you're probably going to keep failing no matter what. But if you learn just like anything like working out or anything, like if you learn the long game process and you go, there's a lot of suck built into this, but the reward is coming. Then it's like, it's easier to just go, okay, I I know I got to do this. I got to run these cameras or I got to go look at this or I got a glass for the night or I, I, like I got to do the process. Mm-hmm. I got to give myself that shot because if I do that, like eventually the reward's going to come and it might not be seven bucks this year. It might be one or two good encounters or whatever. It might lead you two seasons down the road where you kill three of them in three States and you have an amazing season and then you start over like, but, but you learn that it's like, this is what it takes. You know, it's the same thing. Like if you if you struggle with like depression and you're like I got to figure out a way to manage this better one of the things a lot of people learn is I need to move my body and wear myself out like it's not the yeah. only answer a lot of times but it's like I don't want to run I don't want to run 5 days a week but I know that sucky part's going to make me feel better overall and be a better person yep. like I don't have a choice like I got to mm-hmm. trust that process to get myself into a better place Deer hunting is exactly the same. Like if you're not hunting a banging property where, where you can just count on them showing up, you got to figure out that process of scouting and, you know, scout to learn how to hunt specific spots, not just find the deer. The process will deliver for you eventually. And once it starts to, it's like, okay, at least I have a template. When I start veering mm-hmm. off and I start feeling really shitty or like I need that break or whatever, that's fine. You can return to the process. Yeah. I mean, there's no shortcuts, right? This is, it's one of those things that's very akin to like working out, running jujitsu or whatever it is where there's not like a, you know, uh, pass go collect $200 and all of a sudden like everything's good to go. You know, it's, it just doesn't happen that way. Um, it'd be nice if it did, you know, but it's just not the, it's just not the truth of the, uh, truth of the matter. And there's a lot of suck that's built into it. And, and sometimes you said, you know, you mentioned something there about scouting and I was just thinking, I was like, sometimes you have to scout to learn how to scout to where you're not going to do it right the first time, you know what I mean? Or the second time or the third time, you know, it's going to take doing it over and over again to where you start to see like where the shortcomings are. Right. And sometimes you're fortunate that you have someone who's close to you or that, you know, who can point your shortcomings out to kind of help you expedite that part of it. If not, you'll still get there. It might just take you a little longer. And that doesn't matter. I think people get, you know, hung up also like in the idea that like it has to happen within a certain amount of time, you know, and that was probably like the biggest learning lesson with like the the training stuff that I've been doing is that people don't advance at the same rate. There's a lot of reasons why people, even if you commit, two people commit, you know, jujitsu at the same time, same body size, same strength, same everything, and they train the same amount of days, doesn't mean they're going to advance the same rate. And so you can't get hung up on like this person that you started with or that's around your skill level or whatever is advancing more quickly than you, right? 
you, it's all about your your personal journey. And it's interesting once you start focusing on that journey, all of a sudden the advancing happens. Like I won't say overnight, but all of a sudden you start to see it. Like it comes in spades. And I feel like hunting's kind of the same way. Whereas when you start, if you're comparing your journey to somebody else, you're always going to lose because you don't have the same, even if everything you think, everything you can kind of put your finger on is the same. It's not the same, you know, your, your inputs, if you will. Right. Yep. And so you're always going to feel like you're not enough when you're measuring yourself against someone else because they're advancing more quickly than you or they're achieving more than you are. But if you frame it in, am I a better deer hunter this year than I was last year? then you're moving in the right direction. And then that's all you need to be worried about is just what is your journey? What, how are you being fulfilled? How are you enjoying the process? What parts of the process don't you like? Then don't do them. You know what I mean? You don't have to do them. You know what I mean? It's just, you fit, you find what works for you and you focus on the path that you're kind of creating and not the other paths people are, are, you know, creating for themselves. That's a losing battle. You know, and once you start doing that, you know, it's, all of a sudden the, the amount of joy you would expect is there. And then something funny happens is that, is that all of a sudden the results show up too. Yep. Dude, you, you start not taking it so seriously and you start having fun. The big bucks start dying <laughs> and it's a yeah, hard place to get to, man. Yeah. It's, and it's not a, it's not a not caring, you know, cause I think that sometimes people get it and misinterpret it with like having fun and not caring. It's like, no, you care. But it's like you don't live and die with the res- the end result. You know, you you appreciate the the journey. Yep. You know, and that's you know, it, like you could equate like big bucks to like a black belt, right? It's like there's a saying, you know, in jujitsu that anyone who ever wanted to co- become a black belt did, because all it ever is is takes this time and commitment, right? Anyone who ever wanted to kill a booner, really ever wanted to kill a booner, did. Right. Because it just took time and and focus on that thing and eventually it'll happen, you know. And so I so that's kind of like what my new approach has been, has been that. My my new approach is mostly just take my kids and then hunt when I can and (laughs) shoot whatever walks by. (laughs) And I freaking love it. Although I'll tell you what, man, you know, like we talked about, like traveling to new places and scouting new stuff. When, and then, you know, you were just talking about like finding the things you enjoy there. It's, it's not like you're going to find styles of scouting or find some kind mm-hmm. of terrain that you just love to hunt. And that's the end because you'll drift away or yeah. over time, something will be like, I'm, I'm not that into this anymore. I need something else. So like, you have to understand that this is, it's like all happiness, right? It's a moving target, man. Like you hit it today and you won't hit it tomorrow. But you got to keep looking. And I I found that, you know, for I hunted a lot of public land for like a decade, like a bunch of states had a good run, but I was burned, man. Like I was like, I'm I'm sick of driving. I'm sick of camping. I'm sick of like the pressure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the last couple of years with Meat Eater, I've had to save tags and it's been different seasons than I'm used to. And so I was like, this is kind of a relief. I don't feel the pressure to go kill a bunch of stuff on public land. And what I found was that's actually kind of what I need to be happy. Mm -hmm. Like I went to South Dakota and we filmed a hunt with the the Element Boys, the buck truck deal, and didn't go that well. I had a pretty decent hunt, you know, had one really good encounter at the end, but 
I told my wife when I got home, I'm like, I'm going back without a camera guy and I'm going to go figure this out because I just needed it. And I went back and I had another, you know, 130 incher come in super close, screwed that up, but I left it going, even though I didn't fill my tag, I left it going like, that was what I needed. Like it just, mm-hmm. it made me feel good. Like, I'm like, okay, I, I got to have that kind of thing mixed in there. Otherwise the whole thing doesn't work for me. Right. And figuring yeah. the more, the more of that stuff you figure out, the better it is to just go, okay, like, man, I'm veering off a little bit. I'm in the ditch. <laughs> I'm in the rhubarb. Yeah. Like I need to correct <laughs> here and get back up onto the road. And if you know where that is, it's awesome to like try that stuff and figure out new things. Cause you always kind of go, okay, like I know where my true North is. Like I know what mm-hmm. baseline I need to just enjoy this and always find what I'm looking for out there. I think that's so like that matters. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that, you know, people will, um, you know, kind of jump around or experience different things. Like, they would never want to eat the same food every day. We'll use that as an example, right? And and so when you think about, like, how you kind of find, like, happiness or joy and something like that, to expect to find it consistently in the same spot in deer hunting, you know, seems crazy. If you think about it, right? Because you didn't, you don't find that if someone said like, even like, even when I was a musician and was doing that, right? And that was kind of like my gig. There got, to, and that was all I ever wanted to do when I was a kid growing up. Like that was it. Like that was my passion. And I finally got to do it, you know, eight, nine, ten years of doing it. You know, all of a sudden it became a job. You know, and yeah, I still enjoyed it. It was about as lackadaisical, you know, loose call, loose job as you could possibly have. You know, being a delinquent, but there was an element of work to it that started sucking the joy out of it. You know what I mean? Because it became the thing that you had to do and it was a certain type of music and I was expected to write a certain way because that was what we were, you know, had a record deal for or whatever. That was what, you know, the producer was expecting or the management was expecting or whatever the case was. And so it's crazy to think that hunting is not the same. And that's something that I've kind of, you know, realized and kind of been spending more uh, time paying attention to because, you know, you asked me when we first started, like, you know, about, private land or any private land or whatever. And yeah, family owns some back, back home. And I've been thinking a lot recently, like, why am I not going back and spending time with my dad, like hunting his property with him? You know what I mean? Like, is it because I feel so compelled that I've got to do this public land thing because that's what I really like to do? Or should I be hunting with the old man? Because that will actually, that will bring me a different type of joy that I probably haven't had since I was a kid, you know? And, and he wants to go do an elk hunt and I don't like using outfitters and he only wants to go use an outfitter because he's an older fellow. He wants the comforts, you know what I mean? And we've sure. kind of put it off because I'm like, ah, oh, dad, it's just, let's do a public land piece. I got a buddy who's got like a cabin we can stay at, you know? And then I'm thinking like, dude, you're an asshole. Like your dad wants to go do an elk hunt with you at some like, you know, outfitter, like get off your wallet and spend a couple bucks to go make a memory, you know what I mean? And don't be a douche, you know what I mean? <laughs> and and so it's like, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being honest with people that are listening here. It's like I've been very selfish in that regard, you know. And and to me, I think when I think about things, part of what was driving me a little crazy whenever I did that step back and kind of reevaluate was like I recognized the selfishness that I had in this. And that was the other part that was starting to suck the joy out of it for me. And so it was that commitment to like, man, spend time with the buddies, you know, go hunt with your dad, um, even if it's a good weather day and you know there's a deer somewhere that you could try to go kill, like still go hunt with the old man, even though you're probably not going to see jack shit. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, so 
it's just stuff like that. You know, and I don't know if it's like being an adult, you know, or, you know, being a parent with a teenage daughter or, or, or what, you know, because I'm thinking in the back of my mind, you know, even if it's not hunting related, like when she's my age and I hope she would make the choice to spend time with me, you know, and, and so I need to kind of, I need to give her the roadmap for that. She needs to see me do it. She needs to see me be committed to spending time with my dad, you know, as we're both getting older and, and, and stuff like that. And I know that Mark's been doing like this series on parenting and stuff like that. So I don't feel completely out of place mentioning that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it just changes you, man, you know, taking your kids hunting or, you know, you get to a certain age and you realize like the big buck thing is kind of dumb. <laughs> Like it's way overrated. It's not that important, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just more to the experience than that. And you kind of realize how much of a gift this whitetail hunting thing really is. Uh, I think that's a great way to end this man. Where can everybody find your podcast, the website, all that good stuff, social. Yeah. uh, It's uh, truth from the stand on all the different social platforms and wherever you uh, like to, uh, to waste your time running down the rabbit hole. Uh, on YouTube, it's a uh, truth from the stand your hunting podcast, all the places that you find, um, all the places you'll find podcasts. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, buddy. That's it for this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week for more white tail goodness. This has been wired to hunt and I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. As always, I just want to thank you so much for your support and for sticking with us through, I don't know how many hundreds of episodes now, it's bananas, but we really do appreciate that you guys show up every week and you give us the support. So thank you for that. If you want more whitetail content, head on over to TheMeatEater.com. You can see articles that I've written. You can see articles by Mark, Alex Gilstrom, Dylan Tramp, Bo Martonic, whole bunch of whitetail killers. Tony Hansen's in there in the mix too. Or you can, you know, if you have a short attention span or you're just like watching stuff, you can check out The Buck Truck, uh, a new series that we dropped pretty recently that was produced by the Element Boys, who are absolute public land whitetail killers as well. Uh, if you like hunting, if you like fishing, there's some content there for you that you're going to love somehow, somewhere. Go find it at TheMeatEater.com. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.